following announcement has been paid for by the WZWA Network. Hi, everybody. This is former WWE superstar Al Snow. And- CWN is Sean Oliver. My name is Eugene. And you are watching the Insider's Edge podcast. Now get on the train. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast here in conjunction with the WZWA Network. I am your host, California in Fury. Two and a half hours on Friday night with Big Sal from ECW. Three hours with Scott Hudson last night. I am hungover. <laughs> um, but we have, you know, the, this is the, the triple header. This is the third one in three days. And uh, at this time, it's my honor and privilege to introduce to the podcast the one and only godfather of WA Wrestling, Davis Storm. Storm, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm very well, thank you. Got to follow Big Sally and Scotty Hudson, though. That's that's quite the lineup <laughs> we've had this weekend, gents. It's Certainly bad. is not bad. Um, so you know, we we kick things off usually the, the same each time, and talking about people's early life and how they discovered wrestling, how they became a wrestling fan. Would really love to know how you discovered wrestling. Uh, WrestleMania Five which at the time was on free-to-air television here on Channel 10. Uh, I think, you know, I was, I was around in the time when Channel 10 was launched. Um, so uh, I, think they, I think they were sold WrestleMania as something that would kind of help draw a younger audience to their, um, to their network. So, you know, Channel 10 hadn't been around that long at that stage. This would have been in 1989, I guess. Um, I would have been about 10 years old at the time. So... Um, that was my that was my first introduction. They obviously had a, a little bit of a cut down version, probably not the three hour full uh, pay per view that would have gone live in America. But um, there was enough of it to to really grab my attention. I you know I'd never seen anything like this before. I wasn't I wasn't a huge comic book fan. I wasn't a huge. I'd, I'd watch a lot of cartoons as a kid, but there wasn't really anything like this. Um, it was I, I remember distinctly. That the the rockers were the first ones who really kind of reached through the screen and and grabbed my attention and watching them wrestle two big guys like Akeem and the Big Boss Man, you know where where do you see something like this? These these two tiny guys uh, wrestling these two huge behemoths and you you know you you can't get that sort of action anywhere else. It was such an interesting thing um, trying to make sense of it all. And I remember pretty early my brother telling me walking in and seeing it and going ah it's all fake and he was he was about five and a half years older than me and I actually legitimately remember thinking to myself I'm like ah, this idiot doesn't know what he's talking about it's so obviously real how can he <laughs> how can he possibly think this is fake um but just as the show went on you know the my my early childhood influence was the ultimate warrior um so getting to see him later on the card and then I was one of the few who uh, after seeing the story of Hogan and Savage, I I was a Randy Savage supporter. I um, I thought Hulk Hogan had done the dirty on him that he he did have lust in his eyes for Miss Elizabeth and that he uh, he was you know he left he left Savage out there to to fight Bossman and Akeem all by himself. So yeah, I was very much in Randy Savage's corner, and um, I suppose also just being an Ultimate Warrior fan that as the following year went on and then eventually it led to the warrior and Hogan match that 
even more so, I kind of distinctly drew this line in the sand with Hogan. Hogan was always on the outs with me as a, a kid, never a Hulkamaniac, always a little warrior. <laughs> it's amazing it's like uh it's so, it's so interesting to me to to ask people about how they became a fan because as a as a young kid seeing something like that and with the imagination that a kid has it's just it's it's almost uh overwhelming you know seeing all these uh, larger than life characters on the screen yeah i think and, and you know that's probably what vince was going for at that stage i imagine that wrestling had been a very dour smoke-filled arenas um kind of production and vince was the one that really grabbed it and jazzed it up and made it hollywood and mtv and and really dragged it into the uh into the next decade kicking and screaming so you know without without that influence and maybe if the first wrestling i'd seen despite the fact of of how incredible they are if the first wrestling i'd seen had maybe been uh, you know, Dusty Rhodes and and Nikita Koloff, who knows whether I would have been drawn to it in the same way, but these these bright colours and these larger-than-life action figures come to life, uh, that was something that just really drew my attention. Right, and, um, you know, I, I, I'd like to know more about, you know, uh, as the years went by through the early 90s for you, um, you know, going to high school and all that, was wrestling cool in school? No, absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> I I was pretty I was pretty fortunate, I suppose, that the the guy who I fell in with um, in year eight, who was still a friend of mine and, and one of the uh, explosive coastal wrestling originals, um, Phil Benjamin, who's who's one of my best mates. He he came into high school loving wrestling as well, and I suppose the two of us this was kind of our dirty little secret that nobody else could know, or else we'd probably get beaten up for being nerds. Um, but we we both loved wrestling. That said, you know we we kind of watched a fair bit maybe in year eight, and then sort of in year nine, ten, and eleven. You know you get distracted by other things, social things in in high school, and just trying to trying to get by and navigate your way in the world that other things take your attention um girls most notably um <laughs> and then uh you know as as you as you get out of high school and get, get away from those influences you you maybe start to be drawn back to the things that you're actually interested in instead of just being led by by groupthink um and it was sort of in that time i left school a little bit early i think i left at the beginning of year 12 um I hadn't really particularly enjoyed year 11. And then I think I thought I would go back and just give it a, a little bit of a shot. And then within one term, I was pretty determined to get out of there and get to full-time work. So uh, it was probably right around that time though, that um, me and Phil both started to get back into watch WWE pay-per-views. And then uh, we met a guy at a video store um, who would actually be our good friend in the future, Lukey Bolland. Um, when we took out a bunch of wrestling videos, he said, oh, you guys, wrestling fans, yes? And then we, we start to talk. And obviously, you know, when, when you don't meet that many wrestling fans, to bump into someone who's so knowledgeable and actually enjoys wrestling on the same level you do, uh, you fall in with them pretty quick. So uh, made pretty fast friends with Lukey. And then Lukey told us that he was ordering uh, up-to-date WWE uh, or WWF at the time, pay-per-views um, from Over East. I think the, I cannot remember the name. I think was it was it, called was Feg. Was it Galaxy or? No, it was Feg, Feg Collectibles, F-E-G. Um, and um, so those, those guys, 
I started with WWE, uh, WWF pay-per-views. Um, and that's when we really started to, to get right back into it. And this would have been in that 95, 96, 97 period where, where Austin was really catching fire. Um, so, you know, that, that really drew our attention. And then this guy cleverly, I don't know if he meant to do it or if he was just copying over other tapes, but what he would do is if he was copying a two and a half hour pay-per-view onto a three hour tape for you, he would fill the rest of it with, uh, other tapes that he had. So I would regularly end up with just these little slivers of Japanese wrestling on oh, the end shit. of there. Um, and that was very much how my, my wrestling base expanded that I started to see all these things that I'd never seen before. And through wrestling magazines, I had seen uh, Jushin Thunder Liger, who'd been a massive, uh, I suppose at the time I couldn't say inspiration because I hadn't even started wrestling yet, but he was definitely, a figure that I was I was drawn towards even just on the pages of Pro Wrestling Illustrated or Inside Wrestling and uh, I had the good fortune of seeing him live in Perth once in I think it was about 93 uh, Liger wrestled Benoit, Chris Benoit you might have heard of that guy uh, <laughs> no idea um, shit they, uh, yeah they wrestled in Perth um, wow. I, think the, I think the main event was maybe uh Jim Neidhart and Jake the Snake Roberts, I think. Oh. Um, but you know, I I was up to date on I was up to date on recent WWF history at the time, and this is where Jake had been heel with the Cobra hanging off Savage's arm. So I was the only guy in the building booing Jake the Snake out of the place, <laughs> and and one hundred percent behind Neidhart, who uh, was very much the uh, very much the heel on that night. So. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I honestly don't know where we even jumped on at that question because I tend to wander off into the woods with, with anything I'm asked. But yeah, look, it, it, was, it was probably around that 96, 97 period where I really started to get back into it. And then through my, uh, through my emerging love of Japanese wrestling, that was where uh, it really started to turn and it, it very much became something that I was absolutely obsessed with. Right. Um, you know, I, I find when you're talking about seeing these guys in the magazines, I remember that stuff too. Uh, I, I find there's such a charm to being a fan back then and having no access to anything. So you've got to try and find a way to get a tape of something or other, whether it's ECW, whether it's, you know, some of the Japanese stuff, it's very difficult to find. Um, but I, I find a lot of charm in that. Um, when you move on from being just a fan, when does it get to a point where you and your friends decide to start mucking around and, and uh, do it yourselves? That's, geez, that's a really, that's an interesting question, but it's also a really tough one. Um, I can't remember. I can't remember the exact moment where, um, you know, we kind of said, let's, let's make this more of a uh, more of a physical thing something where we can we can get involved personally i think um like anyone it probably starts with you watch it uh as a fan and then as you watch it more and you start to analyze little bits of the wrestling and little bits of the personalities and and you you become more entrenched in the performance i suppose that you you start to you look beyond why do I like this guy? 
because you know when I look back at the Ultimate Warrior, I very much think now, what what were you thinking? Uh, <laughs> but but um, but yeah, th- there must come a point where you know I I know that for um, I think it was for my wife's 18th birthday. I had some friends who are very arty who um, they painted my face as Sting. Like they they started to get into wrestling just through my love of wrestling. Um, and I remember them dressing me up as Sting to go to my wife's 18th birthday party. Uh-huh. Um, and these two guys actually, just a little sidebar, um, two twin brothers from Perth, they actually had their, they released their first Hollywood feature film last year um last year or the year before um but yeah they're they're doing very well for themselves uh overseas now they're uh josh and john baker if you want to give the brothers a look their their directional company is called twin um but yeah they're they've they were the guys who kind of you know once you get into that i I got into that makeup and i carried the baseball bat for a night you know you feel a little bit cooler than you actually are (laughs) and uh you know that that maybe puts that maybe it puts that seed in your head that you go that's that's a really cool feeling just to to pretend to be someone else for for an evening (laughs) um and then you know like any friends do you start to go i wonder how they do that and then you drag a mattress out after you watch a pay-per-view and someone tries a razor's edge and you go (laughs) jesus that hurts like shit uh and then you you uh you know, you, you start to experiment with those one or, one or two things. And then I think like anybody in that early stage where you still don't quite have a full understanding of how involved wrestling is, you look at it and you go, oh, shit, I could do that. I reckon I could do that. That just, I've, I've got a little bit of athleticism. I think everybody who likes wrestling likes to think of themselves as being fairly charismatic. Um, and you, you start to go, I, th- I think there must be a way that I can do this. But then when you, when you look around online and, you know, again, there for the emergence of the internet as well. Um, and in those early days, there wasn't a lot around wrestling was one of the things that I think there probably was a fair bit, uh, on, I know wrestling, uh, I've always heard that wrestling, uh, pornography and, uh, companies that are involved in developing war technology they're very early adopters of technology um and i think part of that is just being on the wwe is probably the exception that being on the fringe of entertainment and not quite being in the mainstream of entertainment that you you have that capacity to take a little more risk um but yeah you know there were there were two wrestling schools that i knew of in australia at that time and they're both in sydney and i was born in sydney but i'd lived I'd lived uh, just about all of my life in Perth. So it, it was weighing up that option at the time. Do I, do I leave my girlfriend and my friends and move to Sydney and try and get a start? And in your head, you know, you kind of go, well, I go there and I train for a while. And then before I know it, I'm in the WWE. So you, <laughs> you, <laughs> you got to weigh it up in your head, you know, or can I, can I sacrifice a certain amount of time over in Sydney or, um, you know, is there going to be another way around trying to start this? And it was, uh, it was probably the death of a good friend of mine in, in 2000 that uh, really got my, my ass in the gear, you know, to death is something that is, is so foreign to us as human beings until it affects somebody directly that, you know, you know, you, 
you hear of people's aunties dying and people's uncles and grandmas and, and whatever else. But um, until, until it's someone that you know in the same circumstances that you're in at the same age that's lived the same sort of life that you have, and all of a sudden you realize, oh shit, there's no, there's no guarantees here. I uh, granted that, you know, he, he took his own life. It was a, it was a choice uh, that he made, but you, you suddenly realize that it's not, there's no guarantees there. I'm not necessarily going to see tomorrow. I'm not going to see next year. So this thing that I say that I love and that I want to do, and that I want to be involved in this industry that I want to be involved in, how, how do I get to moving in that direction? So I, I remember going to, I went to uni for about (laughs) not even a semester, maybe three months because my, my initial thought was that if I, if I get involved in video editing, I knew that video editing was obviously a huge part of WWE's presentation. And I thought if I can, if I can get into journalism or video editing or something like that, that could be my backdoor into this industry. Um, and then, uh, somehow someone just came up with the idea of, Hey, you know, let's practice a few moves out on the, on the front lawn. So you get a few things out, you start to throw each other around and like you do, you go, man, I'm, I'm better at this than I think I am. Uh, (laughs) And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, through, through putting up our own stuff online, this would have been in early 2001. We then get in touch with uh, another crew, uh, XBWA, which was uh, psycho group mikey nichols uh uh drake wallace uh richter the vagrant jimmy payne so there was there was a bunch of the the guys that would go on to be the um explosive coastal wrestling crew who we then met up with and you know when you think about that now we were me uh phil craig uh sorry tyler jacobs (laughs) um we were we were, you know, 20, 21 or 22 year old men at that stage. Right. Um, you know, getting together with a bunch of 16 and 17 year old kids to like <laughs> hur- hurl ourselves around a backyard. And, you know, if you tell that story to anyone else, you think that's probably going to end in someone getting molested or beaten to death. Like that's, that's <laughs> not a good, that's not a good scene at all. Um, but you know, at the time it was just, it was obviously just so innocent. We just, we loved wrestling and we met another crew of people who loved wrestling enough that, and, and I, I think this is something that people sometimes neglect when they think of backyard wrestling. They just think it's people just trying to take a shortcut that sometimes it's just people who love wrestling and want to do it immediately. And this is the outlet to, to get it out that just, you know, not everyone wants to, wants to go to the WWE or not everyone has the capacity to go to the WWE, but you know, whatever that Avenue is that kind of fills that void and gets you started. Um, that's, that's where we were at. So we, we joined forces. Um, a few of us went to, um, the AWF, Greg Bounds was doing what he, what he called dream camp back in the day. And to be honest, it was aimed more at kids. Um, but we obviously needed some sort of Avenue to learn the basics. So Greg's five day camp was kind of built around trying to show you enough of the basics that you could run a really simple match. Um, And both matches I recorded were absolutely terrible. I came back from Sydney, absolutely beaten to shit. Like just your, your body's just ruined after five consecutive days of training Um, and um, got back and it was uh, Nate Dooley, the vagrant who eventually said, 
hey man, we gotta we gotta do something here. We can't we can't just uh, you know. I feel like it, it's it always sounds silly when a backyarder says it, but he said, you know, I feel like we've got some good wrestling minds here, and we can we can do something here. Let's just give it a crack. Even if it's just one show and we do the one show and then nothing else ever happens, we'll always be able to hang our hats on the fact that we, we had a crack and did that one show. And that show ended up being awakening in November of 2001. Jeez. That's such a, that's such a, uh, an interesting long winding story about how it went from this thing where you're just mucking around. Then the next thing is getting really serious. And I really appreciate Mm. what you have to say about backyard wrestling i don't want to go on a pro backyard wrestling tirade or anything but (laughs) young young guys who have other things going on in their lives they have this thing inside them they want to do it Mm -hmm. they just want to do it they want to get it out of their system so that's why they do it i don't think there's ever any uh bad intentions when when people do backyard wrestling um although no, I did it no. a little bit more than most people would have but uh <laughs> um it's interesting that it, how it morphed into becoming a, a professional fed and so you've done your camp you come back are you starting to teach the other guys yourself sure but you know let's let's be real you know five days <laughs> five, five days five days wrestling training and i'm now passing on my wealth of knowledge to <laughs> all these young guys at home i mean you know look we were we were taking it seriously you know as 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 silly as it would it sounds now in in hindsight we were taking it seriously we were we were getting mats together and we were hiring gym space at the um wanneroo community center and we would go down there and put the mats down and we'd, we would start to practice. And, you know, we, we took it as seriously as we possibly could. We were, we were very big on as much as it hurts. You know, you had to be able to do a move three or four times and be able to actually execute it safely before we would allow anyone to do it on a show. Because I, uh, and I always mess this quote up, but I remember hearing Liger say years ago, for every minute he spends in the ring he wants to spend an hour training to be ready for that moment so and you know in reality the the hours that Liger's now logged up in the wrestling ring I doubt that he could have spent an hour um (laughs) for every minute that he spent in the ring but that that mentality was very much there that you know we we wanted to be able to put on a half decent performance if we were going to go out there and um so we we took it as seriously as we could and we I again I took that five days knowledge and we 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 spread that as far as we could in terms of just learning how to bump i suppose and then after that and and i think most decent pro wrestling trainers would be able to tell you this that for me the stuff that i can improve for guys is timing it's movement it's um it's psychology but moves often guys will come to me with moves and say hey man how do i do this move i'll say i don't know just get in the (laughs) ring get in the ring and let's work it out. A lot of it is just uh, balance and timing and practice and just getting the reps in until you feel comfortable with doing stuff. And that's kind of how it was for us that you just, you had to fumble around with it and, and screw it up three or four times before often having that many minds in one room. And, you know, you look back again, you look back in hindsight and you go, if you have Jimmy Payne, Davis Storm, Nate Dooley, Mikey Nichols in a room together, you'd hope that between between one of you, you can work it out. Um, <laughs> but you know, we were all just we were all just young dumb kids at that time. Um, but 
there was there was enough wrestling mouse in the room that you could kind of work it out. Um, yeah. And there's often there's this there's this one transition between Jerry Lynn and Lance Storm, where one of them is in a one of them's in a top wrist lock and he scoots over the top into a hammerlock, I think. And I'm 19 years in now and I still cannot work out. How they <laughs> you know, all the, all the complex moves and stuff that you're able to look at and, and break it down to these simple movements and go, ah, there's the, there's the secret. And Jerry Lynn and Lance Storm have got this one top wrist lock uh, that I just cannot get my head around after 19 years. Watching, you know what? Sorry, Jack, you go. Uh, watching both those guys, Jerry Lynn and uh, Lance Storm, it's like watching magicians chain wrestle and yeah, it is. i mean you, you could just watch them and even like going back to you know late 90s ecw when it was uh, jerry lynn and rvd doing their matches and their program like the sort of sequences they were doing it's like how the hell do you like do you get to that point where you're that damn good but i want to mm. wind back the clock and go to that uh, awakening show in 2001 uh sort of tell me about the process of sort of getting uh you know the ring together you know all the equipment for it booking the show like how was all that experience for you guys um, it was, it was multifaceted. So we almost, we almost had departments, although nobody kind of looked at it that way. We pretty much had departments that, um, I was focused more so on the wrestling and the booking of the show, um, with, with obviously other hands involved, but then the, the actual process of getting the show together, a lot of that was, uh, Nate Dooley, Jimmy Payne, Mikey Nichols, uh, Psycho Fett, um, I'd say the four of them were probably the, the primary guys in terms of getting a building. Cool. We've got a building. What do we do next? We need a ring. Uh, the story with the ring is it's <laughs> just hilarious, but um, we managed to organize a kickboxing ring. Um, and the, the guy that hired us the ring would actually become someone who was really valuable to us over the years. Um, he was a, uh, Muay Thai instructor and um, he would run his own shows. His name is Kevin Jr. Um, Kevin would eventually join the Combat Sports Commission when that came in in Perth. Um, so I still see him occasionally when I, when I would go to fight shows. I would, I would see Kevin around the, uh, around the traps. But um, we, sorry, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but we, um, we, organized, we organized this ring from Kevin. Now, keep in mind that the kickboxing fight that Kevin promotes sometimes have world title fights inside them. So, you know, the ring has to be a specific size. He needs a certain number of ropes. The pads need to be a certain way. So the ring needs to be in immaculate condition in order for him to be able to host world title fights. Cause you know, you can't, you can't have a guy slip over on a banana peel in a world championship fight. Um, yeah. So we hire this ring and the guys have given him a heads up about the stuff we're going to do. But, you know, when you tell a Muay Thai promoter who has no idea what pro wrestling is, that you're going to bring some chairs and tables into the ring, he probably assumes that you're going to have a sit down meeting or a contract signing and that everyone's, everyone's going to go their separate ways at the end of it. And then you're going to take the chairs and the table out. He doesn't think you are going to use those chairs and tables as weapons. And potentially uh, one of those legs of those tables is allegedly going to rip a hole in his canvas. Okay. Allegedly. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> allegedly. So, uh, <laughs> so the end of the show's going on and me, me and Jimmy are in the, in the ring for the main event. And unbeknownst to me, Kevin's in the corner of the room watching the end of this show take place. 
And full credit to him, there's a table propped up in the corner against the ropes. And in his head, he must be thinking, what are these idiots doing? They're going to ruin my ring. To his credit, he sits back and doesn't say a word because he very easily could have run straight into the ring and said, stop that immediately. And we would have said, yes, sir. Uh, not just because it's his ring, but because this man could kill me in the blink of an eye. So, um, so we, um, we finish our match, we go backstage, everyone's patting each other on the back. And then the guys quietly say to me, hey, mate, uh, Kevin wants to see you about the state of the ring. Oh, now, I have, I have not dealt with Kevin at any stage of this process. It has been Nate and Jimmy who have handled this process the whole way. But all of a sudden, Kevin's looking to beat somebody oh, up shit. and I'm the guy in charge of the ring. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> so he, he comes up to me and Kevin, I believe Kevin's Burmese, he comes up to me and he's a tiny bit shorter than me, but he is incredibly intimidating. And he walks very, very close to my face and he's, <laughs> he's, uh, he's got two of his friends with him who are helping to pack down the ring who... Uh, uh, traditional Australians who you imagine then get into Muay and are very influenced by the, um, by the culture and they've got the shaved head and the braided rat's tail oh, down yeah. the back. So I'm suddenly surrounded by three, uh, three Muay Thai fighters who are questioning me as to why we just did all that shit in the ring and what we're going to do to fix it. Um, and I, you know, to his credit, I, I apologize profusely. I say, you know, mate, I'm sorry. I didn't have anything to do. I, I believed that we had cleared all this with you. And he basically said, well, how the fuck was I to know that that's what was going to happen? And fair <laughs> enough. If you never, yeah. never watched a wrestling show, you, you couldn't have even imagined that. So, um, you know, we, we eventually were able to pay him back for all the damages to the ring. And, um, and he actually came to us uh, maybe about two months later. Well, it couldn't have even been two months because the next show, I think, was mid-January or early February. Um, but he came to us not long after and said, hey, one of my students is selling a ring that I built. Um, I might be able to put you in touch with him so that you can purchase that. And this was a, a tiny kickboxing ring. I think it was about 15 foot. Uh, oh, it was just a, just a training ring. Um, and we had to have a sit-down meeting with, a bunch of our guys and say, Hey, I think the ring was about 1500 bucks. You know, can we, can we raise this capital and just throw it together in order to get this ring? Yes, we can. Um, I believe Mikey Nichols may have liberated some mats from double view high school, uh, <laughs> that we then, that we then used to pat out the ring. So Kevin, look, Kevin ended up being this amazing resource for us when, you know, if, um, if he'd been nine, nine out of uh, 10 boxing or kickboxing promoters in Perth, he probably would have just dropped me where I was standing, taken his ring and I never would have heard from him again. But full credit to him, just a, a champion bloke, uh, helped us get into this ring. And then afterwards also um, had us on some of his shows as well, just to do uh, like five minute promotional bouts, just to give people an idea of what we're about and try and promote ourselves. So, wow. um, yeah, but the the you know again back from the the sidebar the the it was it was all these different layers of Nate and Jimmy were the ones who were left holding a lot of the ball in terms of organising venue and ring, um, and then the Double View guys, uh, Mikey, Psycho Fett, Drake Wallace, uh, they were all involved in multimedia at school, so they asked their teachers about hiring some uh, borrowing some uh, camcorders. And I think one of them 
One of them might have played the guitar, so we just managed to get an amp and then hook a mic up to it so that we could do, uh, Lukey did live commentary on the day. Um, but it's just, it is such a team effort that, you know, there are the 16 guys on the show and then Slick Rick Sanders is someone who was very instrumental behind the scenes. But you just, you all pitch in and just do your little bit, whatever it is, whether it's how do we create a program just so we've got something to give people a bit of background on who we are and what they can expect to see. Um, and then getting word out, there was a WWA show, um, which was the thing, uh, gee, I can't even remember the guy's name that was doing it. But, Andrew um, McManus? There you go. It was Andrew McManus, yes. Um, fortunately for us, you know, those guys were touring, I think maybe three or four months before we did the show in, it was November of 2001. So we were able to hand out some flyers that night um, and try and get some promotion. And on the day, I think we probably had about 150 people in a community centre and being young, dumb kids, wow. we went, we went, hey, you know what the best way to introduce everyone is, is a 16-man tournament because that won't take up four and a half hours of everyone's life that they'll <laughs> never get back. Oh, uh, <laughs> so we do a 16-man single elimination tournament. And, you know, by the end of the show, I think, you know, probably a third of the audience has already trailed off and gone home for dinner. Um, but <laughs> if you go back and watch that tape, I, I, I have no doubt that it would be absolutely disgraceful, disgraceful to watch. But, you know, there are people who were at that event who still come to our shows now that just, these are people like us who loved wrestling. They just wanted to be a part of it. They just wanted to feel that energy of a, a live performance. And I think that, uh, you know, they gave us a lot of leeway because they could feel us trying and they just wanted something here that they could latch onto as well, that we could all be a part of. So we were incredibly fortunate that everything came off the way it did. Nobody died. Uh, <laughs> some very, very sore bodies uh, for a long period of time. And then inevitably the question comes up after you do the first one, you know, where do, where do we go from here? It's an absolute crazy evolution watching how uh, the company has sort of expanded over the last 20 years. And uh, speaking of a crazy evolution, especially the venues you guys have used going from, um, you know, Cyril Jackson to Claremont now. Uh, take us back to sort of the first home you guys, would somewhere or a venue you guys would properly call home for the first time, uh, being the Wanneroo Showgrounds. What are your favourite memories from that venue? Oh, God. They're, they're probably... That, that venue is probably most of my favourite memories of those early days that just... Um, the, we use, also used the Wanneroo Community Centre, which is where we held Awakening, which was just across the road from there as well. Yep. Um, so we did use that for a period of time. And then it felt like we were consistently getting, uh, we were consistently getting sort of right on the boundary of what would be considered the capacity of the venue. So um, I think at first we were sort of getting 200 and then 250 and then 300. And then we were oh. starting to breach we were starting to breach 300, 350 fairly regularly. Um, so then we, we try to, um, we try to look for a slightly bigger premises and the Wanneroo showgrounds was just perfect for those early days that it was, it was gritty and grimy and dirty. And um, it was a, you know, in, a, in reality, it's a shed. Um, it's a shed in the middle of an oval that it, it allowed this, segregation of the fans and the audience but from backstage you could still feel the energy coming off the crowd um nowadays at gate one which is such a beautiful venue for wrestling but you lose that energy from backstage trying to watch the match 
Uh, just the curtains are kind of made to deaden sound because um, it's a it's a music venue. Um, so you don't you don't quite get that same feeling. But just at the beginning of a show, you would just hear that crowd go up, and uh, that that energy would just pump you up so much for whenever you had to go out there. Um, you know, God, that that venue being full, I mean, beyond full, I mean, you know, Ill- illegally full, like squeeze them <laughs> in with a shoehorn, get them in there however you can. 500 people on that uh, night in 2003, it would have been. Um, I, I just, I, <laughs> I don't, I, I remember so clear, I have so many clear memories of this thing that happened 17 years ago, you know, I, if my wife asked me a question, I walk into the next room to go get something for her. I've got to walk back out there and ask her what she said again, because I've already <laughs> forgotten, but I've got these memories just burnt into my head. Um, doing the Ironman match with Jag there, um, doing the, uh, doing the six man street fight, which just, um, even today, so many of those things are so clear to me. I remember, I remember getting into the ring and looking out because you know, the place just continued to swell throughout the night. So I think, you know, when we opened doors, we might've been at 420 or whatever. And then by the time we get to the main event, there's 500 people in there. And I have no idea how we got them in there. Um, But there were legitimately 500 people in there. And, you know, we knew that this brawl was going to go all over the building. So you're kind of trying to work out, well, where the hell are we even going to get out uh, into the fans? Walking out... Uh, with Jimmy and Nate and then getting in the ring. And I remember it must've been, uh, it must've been Wally, Drake Wallace, the two of us squaring off in the middle of the ring and we're both jawing at each, at each other. And he just looks around and he goes, this is fucking chaos, man. And you just looked around, you know, a, a two year build to this, to the end of this storyline and just, um, you know, for a bunch of kids, uh, whacking this story together of of this evil group of teenagers who've taken over a wrestling company but to be able to be able to get people invested enough that they they cared that much you know they came there that night to see those guys lose love them or hate them and plenty of people loved them everyone came there that night to see them lose and um i remember brawling out to the crowd with mikey and we just you couldn't find a safe space to move into where there weren't people um it was just unbelievable, just really, really pure emotion. And, and definitely, you know, after that, we struggled a little bit maybe for the next 12 to 18 months. And I wouldn't say that we struggled in-ring. In-ring continued to climb. Um, but just trying to find something, I, th- I think that storyline of the uprising hooked people that came to those early shows. Um, but then we got them to the payoff. And then we got them to the payoff. And I think a lot of people kind of thought well i don't i don't necessarily love wrestling um but i wanted to see this ride out i got hooked on this ride and i want to ride it until it's done and then when it was done uh you know your regulars still came your hardcore still came but that those extra people that we were drawing along and, and particularly in those early days i think you you have a lot of friends and family who come and support and they come once and then they go oh cool that that storyline's pretty cool i want to come back and see how that all finishes up. So there was, there was a little bit of a 2004, I think creatively was a little bit of a dead spot that just, we didn't have that same, uh, that same energy that kind of carried us through those early days where, where people are just, they're so invested in seeing you as a company do well too, because 
you know, in some way or another, they're either there as wrestling fans or they're there as your friends um, in those early days. So they're, they're so invested in seeing the company do well that they want to be there um, and see us achieve these small little milestones. But yeah, the, the showgrounds is just, it was the perfect venue for the perfect time. And I feel like we were probably ready for the move up to the Venville Rec Center when we did move. Um, but if we had gone there earlier, I don't think we would have been that those, those two or three years in the showgrounds really helped us grow and develop to a point where we would be ready for a bigger, nicer venue. Awesome. I have to chime in here and just say, I, I was it. at several of those shows in that venue. And I have to say the atmosphere, I, I can't compare it to anything else that I've ever experienced when I've been to a wrestling show. That was the best <laughs> atmosphere that I'd ever been a part of as a fan. Yep. Amazing. I never got to experience it. I was way too young. But I've, <laughs> I have a, how, I've, how, old, how old were you? Legitimately, 2003. I would have been six years old that year. Oh so. my God. <laughs> um, I remember, God, around 2004, 2005, my dad wanted to take me to a local wrestling show. I could not remember for the life of me if it would have been you guys or if it was a touring gig. But yep. I, I don't know, I just never went to anything when I was younger because I was scared of fireworks. Like I never got to go to WWE as a kid because I was scared of Kane's entrance, things like that. <laughs> you know, I would have been, you know, old enough to experience those shows. And I'm sort of kicking myself that I never just, you know, as a, as a kid, just pushed to go see wrestling live because I was a massive fan at that age, like huge fan at that age. So um, I wanted to sort of talk to you about uh, the name uh, Explosive Coastal Wrestling and then the transition to EPW and Explosive Pro Wrestling, what it is now. So uh, how did you come up with the EPW name? Um, so Explosive Coastal Wrestling, I think, was pretty self-explanatory. What happened yeah. was in the early days, ECW was hot. We were able to get our hands on a replica ECW World Championship <laughs> belt. Uh, so quite obviously... You call yourself ECW. Fancy that. We managed to uh, <laughs> we managed to make ourselves ECW because we had a title that said ECW on it. Very clever. Um, <laughs> and then at some point, you know, and I doubt it would have been me because um, to say that I lacked self-awareness at age 23 would be a complete understatement. Um, someone eventually one day has the hard conversation and says, hey, mate, we're two years in and we're ECW. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, the, com the company had built to a point where um, Rick, Rick Sanders had said, hey, man, I can, I can chip in the money for some... And he did a lot about early design work, but he said, I can chip in the money for some replica UFC titles. They won't look like anything else anyone else has. And I believe that I can print a sticker that will be able to cover the UFC part of the logo um, without, without looking too obvious from a distance. You know, you obviously don't want to take that belt out and celebrate with the fans afterwards because they go, hey, man, that's a UFC replica title with an EPW sticker across <laughs> the middle of it. But, um, but he said, yeah, look, I think, I think I can make this thing look a little bit better. And, and as we as we moved away from the uh, explosive coastal wrestling name, there were a bunch of names that were thrown up. Um, and I, I remember there was talk of even going to four initials, perhaps. Um, we knew we wanted to keep something in there that would, that would still have that, um, have the history in there. 
So I think, I, and I can't be sure, but I think I might have even fought to have held on to the coastal name because I thought that that represented Perth yeah. and Western Australia quite well. But, um, but yeah, it, exactly who, who brought the conversation up. I've got a feeling it would have been Nate or Jimmy um, because they were, they were generally the ones that led these kinds of tough conversations. But, um, but yeah, just eventually somehow settled on explosive pro wrestling that I think it was important to try and, like I said, keep, keep some sense of that history. So the word explosive stayed. Um, we still wanted it to be something that was easy to chant. So <clears throat> being able to, EPW, ECW, exact same thing, essentially. Um, and I think we were at a stage where it was important for us to have the word professional tied in there, that we'd felt like we'd made enough strides at that point. We had, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> we definitely worked ourselves off the Australian wrestling shit list um, that for a long period of time we were, we were described as the redheaded stepchild of Australian wrestling. <laughs> and, you know, our trainer, when we, when we went to Adelaide to be trained by Jag and Cole in 2002, Cole's whole thing, his, his, uh, I mean, despite the work ethic that he drilled into us, the main thing we took away from him was he recognized, even at that early stage, this is 2002, he recognized how evil the internet could be. And he said, you stay off the internet, you shut your mouth, you keep your opinion to yourself and you put your head down and work. Um, and he said, the respect that you want will come in time when people see your work because they won't be able to deny the work that you've put in. Um, and that was, that is very much how I've tried to lead my whole, my whole time in wrestling. I try not to speak out on things unless I, I suppose I've gotten more opinionated as I've gotten older. And part of that is, um, Part of that is I feel like I've, I've done my work and I, I have my, what I've done, my, my legacy, if you want to call it that, set off to the side. But just also part of it is just age and not really giving a crap what anybody else thinks. Just um, being able to be comfortable with who you are and say, you know, those who are on board with me are going to jump on board and those who aren't don't have to. But, um, yeah, you know, pro professional that, that said it all about where we wanted to be at that stage. We wanted people to look at us and take us as more than just um, a backyard wrestling group come to life. Awesome, man. Interest, that's interesting as hell, that's man. really good. That's, uh, that's crazy because I never would have ever guessed in a million years you guys would have been ever viewed, viewed as that in Australia, especially considering how, how far you guys have come now, um, being mm. one of the premier brands in Australia. Yeah, it's a, it's a crazy journey that you, know, you, you look back now and consider... There were people just after Mikey got hurt at the second show, and we we made page three of the West Australian. I've still got the I've still got the uh, clipping aside somewhere. There's a, a sweet picture of Jimmy t-boning me out of my boots, and the head the headline said "Wrestler dices with death." Um, Mikey Mikey hit his head pretty severely on the second show. Started going into convulsions. I had to carry him backstage. We had to call an ambulance, and just out as our luck would have it, a criminal reporter from the West Australian happened to be in the audience that night just by chance. Um, and we made page three of the West Australian newspaper. Um, you know, I have been trying for the past 18 years to get back to page three of the West Australian and can't <laughs> get a sniff, cannot get a sniff. Um, so yeah, you know, having that, having that, and we had wrestlers who were 
calling us out online and said, you know, you're a disgrace to the industry. You've got no respect. And that was hard. That was hard for us because we always thought of ourselves as people who loved wrestling and respected wrestling to hear the entire industry just turn on us like that was really tough. And to have Jag, Jag could have just become another guy with a, a fork and a pitch and a uh, torch and come after us. He could have, he could have stuck the knife in and just said, you know, you guys are, you guys are bums. But um, he, he reached out when he didn't have to, and he could see through the work that we'd put online that we were crap, but we obviously cared and we wanted to move wrestling in the direction that he wanted to move wrestling in, that we were taking chances and we were taking risks and we were doing moves that the traditional guys didn't like. And at that stage, Adelaide and Melbourne were still, and Sydney were still very old school. Um, the wrestling style they presented was very carny, very, um, very uh, 1990s WWE. And what we were doing was something different. And Jag, saw something in that related to that, that he jumped on board with us and just having his name attached to us, even before we, we really went back and proved ourselves back over here, just having his name attached to us did so much in terms of trying to help us earn that credibility back. Yeah. Shit, man. It's yeah. uh, some trying times there for you guys. And obviously you came out the other end pretty good. Um, uh, and you've actually already uh, answered a question that I had lined up about what people from other states thought of you guys at the time. Uh, I want to know what your thoughts are on what the Australian wrestling scene was like during those days. Uh, I remember on Fox Sports there being a few Australian wrestling super shows, which never yep. happened again. Um, did any of you guys ever get to be on one of those shows as well? And yeah, just what were your, what are your thoughts on what the scene was like at that time? Um, it was, it was very much emerging. So there was, there was the old school and there was the new school pushing through and it was being led by different people in different States. So, um, you know, Ryan Eagles and Madison Eagles were kind of responsible for pushing the newer style of wrestling through in Sydney. Um, Lobo was responsible for pushing a new group of guys through in Melbourne that he didn't want to, he didn't want to stay stuck in the old school style of wrestling. Um, Henry was super responsible for really inspiring a lot of people in Australian wrestling. Jag and Havoc were doing it in Adelaide um, along with guys like Steve O'Neill and Rocky Monero. Um, and then, you know, we were kind of the sole guys out here flying the flag out here. So um yeah, it, it was definitely in a transition phase. And there was, it's fair to say that there wasn't a lot of cooperation between borders that, um, not in the way that there is now, that we all looked, we looked to everyone else and not necessarily in a negative way that we wanted them to fail, but we would see something that someone would do and that would fire us up to say, hey man, look at what they're doing. We need to do better here. It pushed us harder to, to get back in the gym and, and do more work over it was promotional stuff, you know, putting out better quality videos or better quality flyers or whatever it was. It's was just, there was a, a real competition between the States about, you know, who was going to be the one to fly the flag for the new generation of Aussie wrestling. Um, but in terms of what, you know, what did that scene look like? We all begrudgingly respected each other. So you know, I, I looked at Melbourne and yes, we wanted to be better than them. And I looked at Sydney and yes, I wanted to be better than them, but you could look over there and you go, Oh, 
they're just like us. They're pushing like we are. They're trying to push the boundaries. They're trying to develop a new style of wrestling. They're not staying stuck in the mud. They're not comfortable going out there, carrying a two by four, giving it a hoe and a thumbs up to the crowd. (laughs) These are guys who are pushing the envelope and trying to, you know, having bloody ladder matches and death matches and all kinds of stuff that, you know, not, not my cup of tea, but um, they weren't comfortable just showing up and collecting a paycheck just for making an appearance. These were guys that the, the artistic side of wrestling meant something to them. And they were, you know, if we had to pay with our bodies, then that was just, just what you had to do. Um, But, you know, in, uh, I, I regularly hear from guys who are kind of top Aussie wrestlers now that say, Hey man, we used to watch your, we used to watch your video clips back in the day and that we were actually their first exposure to Australian wrestling. Um, Robbie Eagles is always the most famous one that I will, I will point to. I, I, although I think uh, J-Rock, Bronson Reed, I think he saw uh, a lot of our stuff online as well. Um, but Robbie regularly reminds me, you know, I will, uh, I have no shame in saying I'm, I message Robbie regularly to say, Hey man, what's up? So happy for your success. Cause uh He's worked so hard over such a long period of time. And I genuinely don't think anybody dislikes him. Robbie's just the sweetest guy in the world and, and he's worked so hard. And I'll message him and say, you know, could not be happier for him. Um, and he'll say, hey, man, you know, you guys helped. You guys helped G me up. Like if you, if you look at all the backyard, which is incredible because if you consider, you know, the stuff we were doing in ring at the time robbie was probably doing crazier shit in in back in backyard times hvwa him and maddie diamond they were probably doing stuff like far exceeding anything we were doing in the ring at the time but that he he looked to that to that was his first exposure to australian wrestling and he kind of went oh cool like wrestling doesn't have to be the old 90s style of uh of wrestling we can move things forward and we can we can do uh more exciting things so yeah, it was, it was, it was cool being in those times. Like you felt like, you felt like you're in a war, and it pushed everyone so hard to, you know, we want to be the guys to that when people think of Aussie wrestling, they say, oh yeah, that's EPW, that's the that's the crew we know of. Um, you didn't want to be, you didn't want to be second place or third place. You wanted to be the top dog. Yeah, um, I, I, I'm really interested to know what things were like. Uh, I guess behind the scenes with you guys uh, during that time, you're all young. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it a big party all the time after every event? Did you guys, you know, really uh, get on the source? Um, it was, it was a community that um, show day. Everyone, so many people are involved from the time we pick up the truck to you go to, you drive to Maddington, you load the ring into the truck, you load the production equipment in the truck. Maybe you have to stop at um, Matrix Productions or somewhere like there on the way and pick up some gear from them. And then you drive to Wanneroo and then you spend all day setting up the ring, setting up the lights, setting up the entranceway. In the old days, back in, um, back in the Wanneroo showgrounds, we would have to hang black plastic pretty much from one side of the building to the other to be able to black out a backstage area for us. Oh, God. Uh, right, so yeah. someone had to get up there and put that up as well. Um, and then, you know, after the show, you pack it down, you load the truck back up, you drive back to Maddington, you unload it all. And if you're unlucky enough, like uh, I was on many occasions, you set the ring back up as well. And 
you know, I was by that stage, I'm trashed. I'm not going anywhere. So there was yeah. a small group of us. There was a small group that would um, leave after we'd finished packing down at the show and they might, they might go and get on the source. Um, but you know, there was a bunch of us poor buggers who had to go back and you wouldn't be leaving the factory until sort of four or five the following morning. Um, Shit. But, but on the, on the flip side, you know, every weekend that we didn't have a show, we were all together. There was almost wow. every, every Friday night, every Saturday night, everyone was just together all the time because you, you were a part of this tiny community that you shared this one thing with that you couldn't share with anybody else that, you know, I could go to work and I could have conversations about music and I could have conversations about my love life and I could have conversations about uh, the footy, but I couldn't talk to them about this one thing that meant more to me than anything else. And the only place I could get that was from my crew, this tiny little crew of, you know, 20 or 30 people. It wasn't, it wasn't a big group at the time. And just when you have 20 or 30 people in a group, it's going to be someone's birthday almost every weekend. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're getting together and you're, you're having a party and then, you know, pe- people are drinking and then you're going home and then the following morning, 10 o'clock, we're all at training. Um, just that was, that was the mentality back then that just, uh, I was lucky. I, I'm, I wasn't a huge drinker, so it never really affected me all that much, but um, you know, credit to those young boys. They would, they would go out and hit it and then they would be there ready to go first thing in the morning and when their number was called they went so um but yeah, well, it's, it's just a, a really tight-knit community is the way yeah, i describe it it's like a family man like it's it must really be special to you and everyone else that was involved during then just some great memories that you shared together all the time yeah definitely and we're you know you try to encourage the new kids to do that as well that um i i have good one-on-one relationships with all these guys but I'm not going to go out on the town and party with a bunch of 19, 20 year olds. Like, <laughs> I'm always, I'm always 41 now. Like I'll, I'll leave that partying to them. Um, but, but I encourage them to keep that circle tight and to, to look out for each other. And I also try to say to the whole group, you're not going to love everyone in the group. That's just not how it goes. You yeah. get a group of 20 people together. And especially now with the, with the periphery people involved in EPW, you know, you can have up to 40 or 50 people there on any given night. Um, but you're not, you're not going to love everyone, but this is, this is your team. Like yeah. you, you go to war with this team um, and you don't have to like everyone, but you at least have to get along. And in this environment, you got to have each other's back. Um, before I throw it back to Jack, uh, I just, uh, I wanted to say, I remember the first shows that I would go to as a fan and how innovative everything was to me and, and how solid the stories were. Um, it just made it feel like you couldn't miss the next show. Uh, what was the process like back then creatively and how has that changed over the years? There was a lot of arguing. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Um, for most of those early days, it was um, myself and Rick Sanders who would make the final decision on everything. But then there were a lot of people on the on the outskirts that would chip in and, and have their opinions. So uh, Nate Dooley was one. Jimmy Payne was one. Jimmy would be more, if he saw something that he thought didn't make sense, he would speak up. Whereas Nate would actually have an idea. Um, Mikey would actually have an idea. Um, and then over time, you, you start to work with different people in different minds. And as you find people who have a strength in a particular area, you lean on them more. So as Devlin Reeves got onto the card, 
and he was at the time he always laughs because he says when he started you know he imagined he was going to be this big tough ass kicker (laughs) and then show number one we have him come out to cnc music factory everybody dance now and he's the playboy devlin reeves and he's kind of this fun <laughs> favorite character yeah, it's yeah, my yeah favorite it is my favorite <laughs> <laughs> um but when you see someone who has uh great command of of character and comedy you go cool we can leave that guy in that pocket and he can suggest ideas to us coming out of that area um and then, but it, it was really myself and, and Rick that took the majority of the decision making. And it makes things really easy when you have a small team and you have two people making the decisions because uh, you will have people that aren't happy. Um, but uh, once, you, once you know the decision making is just down to those two people, you don't feel the need you like people to be involved in the creative process, but really at some point, somebody has to just say yay or nay. Um, When you have a locker room full of guys like today. So um, it's, it's much harder because you have a lot of experienced voices in the room and everybody does wrestling differently. Me and me and Bobby Marshall were having a laugh the other night about how often we disagree on wrestling. And no two people have clashed on booking more than me and Bob. And, you know, for the longest time, it was just me going, well, I'm in charge. So you, <laughs> you can just, you can shut your mouth and eat it. Um, now, nowadays I am booking, but Bob is my boss. Uh, within EPW, Bob is my boss. So uh, it makes the dynamic a lot more interesting because now I have to, I do have to consider other people's voices and it's, it's weighing up. Um, can I, can I work artistically within the system and within the parameters I've been given? Um, or do I have to say this ain't for me? You need to get someone else in this role because uh, again, I'm fortunate enough that I'm, I'm at a position where I don't need to book. I don't even really want to book. Um, but just, um, I feel like it's a role that I can serve well at the moment. Um, so I'm happy to be there doing it. But if someone decides that I, I'm not doing what they want me to do, I'm also very happy not to do it. So um, un- understanding what my strengths are and the way that I book and the way I like to book, if that isn't congruent with what management wants out of me, then cool. Like you, you need to know within yourself, I will continue to toe the line up to here, up to here, up to here. Yeah, no, that's too far. That's too far. And then you say, hey, either we come back to a place that I'm more comfortable in, uh, I need to change or I need to change my environment. So, um, yeah, it's, it's both have their challenges. Um, but I think when I was younger and dumber and more aggressive and more angry, I was happier to just be the bad guy, to just say, hey, man, I don't... I, I, as I like to always say, I respect your opinion, but your opinion is wrong. (laughs) Um, Whereas nowadays, nowadays it is tougher because I, as, as someone who goes out there and I, you know, if I disagree with something in the booking, I will go and fight tooth and nail, particularly when I wasn't booking. If I'm not happy with something, I will fight you to the death. But then if you put your foot down and say, no man, that's it. I will go out there and give that 110%. Because if it fails, I want it to fail on your bullshit, not on mine. 
Yeah. That whatever you give me, I will go out there and kill myself trying to make that happen. But if it doesn't work, the blame will be squarely on your shoulders, not on mine. Um, but then, you know, I have guys do the same to me where they, they put their foot down and say, man, I, I really want it like this and not like this. And you say, cool, man, go, go ahead and do it because you, you don't want to take that control out of, you know, someone, someone on our roster, like I'm not going to, I'm not going to micromanage a Marcus Pitt. I'm not going to micromanage a Damien Slater. I'm not going to micromanage uh, a Bobby Marshall. They know, they know what to do. They know who they are. It's yeah. not for me to tell them who they are. If they get it wrong, it's for me to go to them afterwards and say, hey, man, didn't agree with that. You didn't do that. I, don't, I didn't agree with how you did that. But you don't want to crowd an artist, an artiste too much because yeah. then you, you take the fun out of it for them and then yeah. you end up with WWE clones who are unhappy doing their job for millions of dollars. Absolutely. <laughs> um, sort of uh, going into your career, we're going about 10 years in, uh, you had your first retirement. Was this, I believe this was 2011? Uh, was uh, it, yes. Yep. Was this a break or were you done for good or was there an injury involved in that? Or? <laughs> I just told this story recently. I, can't, I cannot for the life of me remember where I told it, but so this retirement was always, uh, this was always a Kfabi retirement yeah. that my plan was to, uh, kill off Davis storm. Yep. My, my plan was to come back as a Kabuki style, great Muda esque character that, um, had really shocking movements and, uh, the face paint and the mist and all that get up. I thought I'll walk away. I walked away for legitimate reasons that I had. Um, I felt like head injuries were starting to pile up. I was, I was spitting when I talked, I was slurring my words. I was losing train of thought constantly in the middle of sentences. And this was right around the birth of my son. Um, I just thought I don't, I don't want my son to be spoon feeding me at age 41. Well, here I am. So, uh, and he's not spoon feeding me yet, but I, I just, I didn't want to be left in that position. Um, I wanted to enjoy the kid's childhood. So, um, so yeah, I, I made the decision just to take some time off. And then I thought I can kill off this Davis storm thing and be done with that. Um, and then when I come back, I can come back as this interesting new character in the 12 and a bit months that I'm off chase Griffin decides to debut as a Kabuki style, uh, baby face, <laughs> yeah, I remember that. which is exact. I mean, he didn't know, but the, the face paint, the movement, uh, the attitude, the, the theme music, basically everything he did was how I had imagined, uh, I would come back. So, I um I sat out and tried to think of something else creative and you know I'm not I'm not a super artsy creative guy in that sense. My one idea was gone and I was like, you know what, I'll just come back as Davis Storm, I guess. <laughs> I, don't, I don't I don't mean to rub salt in the wounds either, but I went I went to every show, every APW show in 2012 and I absolutely loved Chase Griffin's gimmick. How was it sort of being at shows and not wrestling? Like did you miss it? <laughs> Uh, no, no. Um, I think, and probably having my son was really the turning point that I, I had always looked at the, the rest of the roster and 
tried to always want the best for them. I've, I've never been someone who I think any of the guys in the roster could look at and say, you're trying to take that away from me so you can have it for yourself. Um, that over my time as a trainer, my thought always was when I saw Bobby Marshall and Shane Haste and Mikey Nichols and these guys screaming up behind me that I think there's definitely a part of you that says, Oh shit, man, do I, they're, they're working harder than I am. Do I teach them everything I know or do I keep a few tricks in the back pocket so that I'll always be useful. And at some point you have to say, if they're working harder than me and they can take that information and make it better than I can, they deserve that more than I do. And it is just on me to lift, to try and lift my work rate to, to be better. Um, and I was at a point where it was satisfying being on the outside and just helping people at training and then watching them translate that into the ring and start to grow and start to believe in themselves that I think that was probably the time the first time in, in my time in wrestling that um, when I saw someone achieve something awesome, I didn't go, Oh man, that's great. But then also feel that feeling of emptiness that oh, shit, man, I could have done that. Or yeah. what would I do in that position? Instead, I was now in a spot where I could look at the rest of the roster and just say, Hey man, that's awesome. And sharing the joy of what, whatever they're getting over. Um, that it really was just kind of, sitting back and just waiting for something to come up. Um, and I can't even remember if I was, I think I was booking at the time. Um, I think I was still booking at the time because there was, there was quite a period of time where I gave it away, probably a stretch for about six or seven years. Um, and I think it was not long after that, that um, I gave it away, but we needed someone for a spot for a um, 10 man tag with William Darcy that I suppose on some front we were, trying to recreate the uprising angle, but just in a different, in a different right. frame, in a different format. And, um, and yeah, we needed one more baby face. So I ended up giving myself the call. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. Uh, I remember that night very well, uh, especially with the, um, the pyro coming out of the, the corners and everyone was. Pissed. So it's just an awesome <laughs> yeah. moment I remember. Yep. Man. Uh, awesome. Carl? Um, the next little section I want to go over is the solution. Yep. Um, it's uh, my favorite storyline in EPW history. Uh, first and foremost, I want to know how that was all put together from idea to fruition. Um, so the, the idea and the aesthetic and all of that, I can credit 100% to Shippy. Um, that he was already, he was already, uh, around the fringes doing the war, the warship anonymous gimmick. Yeah. Um, he had, he had spent time, uh, between him and Jado, uh, banger. They had, they had spent time creating this aesthetic around this character. Um, and you know, it was, it was cool. It was, it was something that really separated shippy from the rest of the pack. Um, and, the, the guys were presenting his, um, they, he would put his videos up and they would have these little spots for him on shows. But I think they didn't really have an idea of where it was going. And I remember, I'm sure it was Jamie, Jamie Jura came to me and said, Hey, can I have, can I have Shippy as a guy in this thing that I want to do? Um, and I don't know what it was that went off in my own head. And I, I can't remember if I actually agreed to it with Jamie and then went back on it. 
or whether I cut it off at the past and said, no, nah, man, I'm sorry, that's not going to happen. Um, but I looked at this as this chance to somehow get to this character that I had imagined myself being when I came back, that I would be able to paint my face. I would be able to move to a different style and a different attitude and remove myself from the day the storm that everyone had known for 11 or 12 years, that this could be something that could really help reset me. Um, and I felt like we were a nice combination of Shippy had the aesthetic down. He had the gimmick down. He had the, the whole feeling around it was fantastic. And I brought a level of in-ring credibility that would help him as well. So I thought this is a nice combination of his gimmick will help pull me up and my in-ring and my credibility with the fans will help bring him up at the same time. Um, and that beginning, I was just thinking about that, the, the beginning, the way we laid the tracks, that is, that is as good a pro wrestling angle that I've been involved in. I think that, yeah. um, you know, he would show up every time Hayden was involved in something and I would look like I was trying to save Hayden. But every time that I tried to save Hayden, I'd end up costing Hayden. So Hayden's looking at Shippy saying, you know, I've, this, this guy's out to get me. And then eventually, obviously, the, the wheel turns in Hayden's head and we're going to announce this new member of the solution. And we go to the ring and Hayden's accusing me of, I'm, you're going to be the guy, you're going to be the guy. Because uh, he knows that I've been screwing him at every turn, and I'm, I'm denying it. And then Shippy comes out with Richter, and the fans go, "Oh, that's the new guy." <laughs> and then, and then that moment where, uh, where uh, I, I, I think I stalk down Shippy and Richter, and I grab him by the shirt, and then I slowly turn around, and the three of us are standing on one side of the ring, and Hayden's on the other, and just that, the penny dropping moment with the fans and with the. I just, I love that man to, to, I, I'm not a, I'm not a Vince Russo swerved guy. I am a guy who I like laying the tracks that if you are, if you are paying attention, you go, I know exactly where this is going. And yes, sometimes that's predictable, but I like to reward the fans who are paying attention that if you yeah. lay enough, if you lay enough breadcrumbs that they go, man, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. Um, it's so rewarding just to hear that audience go, Oh God, of course, of course. Yeah. And just that build from there, particularly to the, um, the six man tag with um, Husey, Banksy and Hayden. Um, that was just, that was one of the, uh, one of the funnest periods of my, my whole career that just working with those guys and having this great angle that, ran through the middle of the card and sort of helped strengthen up the middle of the show was just so rewarding. That match actually won match of the year voted by the wrestlers. So we have a fan vote and then at the end of the year, we have a wrestler vote and the wrestlers voted that match of the year. And I think that one probably means more to me than anything because we were a mid card feud. We weren't, we weren't designed to be the, and I think, you know, if you look at the in ring work that year, you know, Chris Weiss, Alex Kingston and Marcus Pitt are just absolutely annihilating it at the top of the card. But we had such a strong emotional connection with that storyline. Um, and it got such a great reaction on the night. Uh, Banksy brought a couple of his footy mates. Uh, they were in the drinking section. It just made for this amazing, amazing atmosphere and this wonderful payoff to this storyline. Um, yeah, you know, full, full credit to Shippy that just he he was the one that 
brought the whole idea together. And all I thought was, Hey man, I want to, I want to steal off that a little bit or a lot. I want to steal off that a lot and bring that character over to be with me. And in turn, I hope that, you know, my in-ring and my timing and the way I set up things, that all those things in time will also help him um, and he'll be involved in things that mean more because my name's attached to him. Yeah. I, I, I know you're saying that this was just a mid-card thing, but it's firing on all cylinders. Is it at a point now where it's like, now you're forcing the hand, this thing now has to become the main story? going on in APW? Sure. Um, it was Brad, Brad West, Devlin Reeves, and uh, it might've been Nate at the time that was booking, um, or Nate might've left, and it might've been Slater who was the third man in that, in that combination. But um, at some point, the guys have made a real focus to get, uh, newer, younger guys over that the focus really went towards, they would have a project at the beginning of every year of we want so-and-so to be at a championship level by the end of the year. So, yeah. um, you know, Logan Gray and they handled, they handled him perfectly. Um, they also handled him in a way that burnt him out real quick <laughs> because from day one, he was pretty much in main events, main yeah. event angles and storylines. Like that's a lot of pressure because you know, EPW has had a reputation for such a long period of time that for this guy who grew up, grew up around us as a kid, like just, you know, when he started coming to shows and helping uh, his brother, Chris Bell, they were, he was helping us set the shows up. He was just an eight-year-old kid. And now here, here all of a sudden, he's a, a grown-up, athletic, tattooed uh, guy who's just so amazing in the ring, has so much physical charisma in the ring. And just this amazing command of his own body that somebody goes, Hey man, you know what we haven't had in probably EPW's whole history. We haven't had a guy who came in on day one and was the guy. And, yeah. and he has something that makes him stand out immediately. Um, so they would, they would have these things of we're going to push this guy this year. And then the following year, I think it was um, uh, gen zero. They're like, by the end of the year, we right. want all, all gen zero to the, to the top of the card. Um, I, I get that role partly because, or a lot because the solution gimmick gets over and partly because the guys on that team know they can trust me to not put myself first. That when it comes time to put over Logan Gray, when it comes time to put over Michael Morleone, whoever it happens to be, that I will put 100% of the focus on these guys, that I will allow them to have their moment and... Um, you know, the Logan Gray one was a tricky one because part of it was the the interplay between me and him as characters when he was in the solution. Um, and then on the flip side, the following year, you know, Marcus Pitt is the one that really throws me and because at, at the time I wasn't in the, I'm not in the shape that I was now. I, my head probably wasn't in, in the wrestling as much as it is now. Um, being distracted by by two kids he really was the one that lugged me and Logan on his shoulders and carried us through that feud. Like he was just, um, he's, he's such an amazing in-ring worker. Like there's just, uh, he, he gets all the credit in the world and he still doesn't get enough credit. He is, he is an amazing guy to work with. Um, 
so yeah, you know, in some way, did we force their hand? Probably a little bit, but probably also uh, Slater, Devlin and Brad know that they can trust me to do the right thing at the right time. Um, and I think that was, that was probably the, the most important thing that they, they wanted to get these new guys over. And like I said, it just came down to a, a certain level of trust that they need to have in the person that, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be the guy that's arguing finishes or, um, or not doing what they ask. I'll, I'll back their play 110%. Awesome, man. And um, before I throw it back to Jack, I'll uh, just kind of finish. I mean, there's so much more I could talk about with the solution, but we've already gone an hour and a half at this point. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I just want to ask, you know, um, how do you feel the conclusion of the group? when and what do you pride yourself on most looking back with it? Um, I do look back at it with, especially the early times, I look back at it with such fondness and then the end, I look back with a fair amount of disappointment. Okay. That's, um, you know, there, there's a bit in the middle where I am fighting for certain things and Shippy is fighting for certain things and the booking team is fighting for certain things. And so often we would head into a show where um, Shippy felt like the ideas and I, I agreed with him. Sorry, I, sh I shouldn't, I shouldn't throw all the, the hate on him because I would agree. <laughs> Me and him had a really strong idea in our heads of where we wanted the storyline to progress. And then we would be told that's going to take too much of the focus off the main thing that we need to push tonight. We can't have you guys doing that. Um, yeah. And, you know, we would go and we would fight. And then in the end, we would, we would compromise and compromise is just a shitty way of saying nobody gets what they want. That <laughs> yeah. we didn't, we didn't quite deliver on the booking side and we didn't get what we needed either because we were trying to play both sides of the fence and maybe we needed to, just commit to what we were being asked for instead of trying to compromise and do what we wanted and what they wanted. Um, and there, there were some times where just, I think uh, wrestlers and fans were just kind of left scratching their head going, what the hell just happened there? I don't, I don't understand what happened or why that happened. And in mine and Shippy's head, and this is something I very much stress the trainees now, in mine and Shippy's head, the story made sense because we knew where it had gone, what people's motivations were and where we were going. But the fans don't know that. You're telling this story in your own head and you go, this makes sense because of this, this and this. But maybe the fans haven't been subject to step three and four, which have only taken place in my head or in Shippy's head. So we go out there and we do step five and a fan goes, how did you get from two to five? That, that doesn't make any sense. So there were these really disjointed moments um, and then in the end, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know exactly what happened towards the end, whether, because, um, you know, we, we finished up, he got, he got a win over me and then we, we kind of wrapped things up, but it never led to anything for him, whether, yeah. whether the, the booking team at the time felt like he wasn't ready to take a step out on his own, whether, um, whether, you know, a lot of the, I said part of me pairing myself with him was to hopefully add some some credibility to him and then hopefully that would carry over, whether they felt that that hadn't carried over or that they were concerned about 
how he would carry the ball by himself as opposed to when he was in there with uh, me and Richter and, and the rest of the crew. So, like, my, my biggest disappointment is that I wanted the group to form in order to, when we split off, that the individual parts that split off would be more important. And yeah. I can't say that for AZ. I can't say that for Jordan Bishop. I can't say that for Shippy. Um, I can't even say that for Richter because, like, you know, he, he was struggling with injuries at the time. Um, so nothing really came of it for him. Like the, the guy who was, of all the guys who should have been left standing at the end of it, it shouldn't have been the guy who'd been around for 17 years uh, <laughs> to then go on and have, you know, I've, I've genuinely had probably the best run of my career since I left the solution. But uh, that certainly wasn't what it was intended to do. The idea was that at the end of this, all the pieces of the puzzle would come out of it being stronger than what they had been leading into it. And, that's probably the most disappointing thing for me. And it, it does leave a bit of a sour taste in my mouth that I, I never like to lay the blame outside of my own court. So I look back at that period now and say, what did I do wrong that didn't lead to greater success for these guys coming out of it? Um, and, you know, AZ's bounced back really well and is in some sort of career best form as well. But I just, I, I felt like I could have done more and maybe through getting blinded by my own vision of what it needed to be um, that I've maybe let those guys down. I mean, I, I don't think you have, man. I mean, I, sometimes these things just happen and that's just what the circumstances are at the time. You know, I, I, I myself as a fan, I was always really confused as to why after Warship beat you after all that story. And then he would you know, never saw him again on the show. Um, yep. But, yep. you know, I, it's just circumstances. Maybe I, I don't think you're to blame at all. I think you put your heart into it and it really gave something really interesting for all these guys that were in the group, something to do. Cause mm -hmm. what would Richter have done during that time? Mm. He, you know, yeah. he was, he was, he was your bodyguard or, or whatever you want to call it. And, you know, so that kept, kept him on the shows. And I just think overall, looking back for me, you might be disappointed to, with, with the ending, but uh, I think it was without a doubt, the best angle that I ever saw in EPW history. Cool. Well, that's, that's important because I'm <laughs> glad someone was enjoying it. Even if I was at the end of it, I was miserable that I hadn't done the job the way I wanted. I'm glad that it still came off as uh as decent entertainment. So. And, and you're probably quite happy to not hear, they keep calling me. <laughs> oh, man, 10 times a show. So it's a great song. <laughs> uh, Jack, I'll throw it back to you and I'm going to go to the toilet while you uh, sure. bring up the next round of questions. Um, so the next round of questions, we're going to talk about, um, you know, the, the APW School of Pro Wrestling. Um, yep. You want to sort of talk about the origins of the school, um, how you came about wanting to sort of open your own school up and um, help train wrestlers. Yeah, so I suppose in the beginning, it was just um, it was just necessity that we, we had a very small group of wrestlers. We knew that we needed to expand both in order to keep the factory open that we'd, um, that we'd leased, but also if we wanted to grow... EPW or ECW at the time, we needed more wrestlers. We needed fresh blood. We needed, uh, you know, after shows, you'd always have fans coming up saying, Hey man, how can we get involved? How can we get involved? So eventually we come up with the idea of running an open day. Um, first open days, super well attended. And out of that first group, I don't think we've ever managed to get a group like this ever again. Uh, Shane Hayes, Kyle Steria, Tommy Cartel, oh, James Street, Devlin Reeves, 
Um, I think Michelle Hasluck was in that group as well. Bobby Marshall. Um, that initial group of, of trainees is just, uh, yeah, there's a, a list as long as my arm. Um, and, you know, it, it just becomes this thing of wanting to, wanting to push everyone to get better. But just you all, you all get behind that first group and you all push each other and you all get a little bit better. And then you have more people knocking on the door saying, hey, man, can we, can we come in? Yeah, by all means. And you come and you try to bring them you try to bring bring them in in groups because like holding a tryout is kind of the best way to do that. That if you can get three or four or five people to come through together, that they can grow and learn together. But if they come through as individuals, it's easier for them to fall by the wayside because they don't have a partner there to when they don't feel like training or they're banged up. Um, there's not that person there to check in on them and, and see how they're doing and pick them up and drag them along to training. Um, but sometimes they just disappear. And then when that becomes the habit of not going, um, it's easier just to lean into that than it is to to sh force yourself to go to training when you're not really feeling it. So, um, yeah, just over time, uh, you know, Mikey and myself traveling to LA, training at the dojo over there um, with uh, Kendo Kashin, Rocky Romero, TJ Perkins, Finn Balor, Carl Anderson, uh, Alex Kozlov. We were just, Hartley Jackson, obviously. We We were there at a time where just, um, it, there almost couldn't have been a better time in the history of the dojo for us to be there. That just there was this group of guys who were on their way up, um, hard workers, great personalities. Everyone just got along like a house on fire. And um, but to see the level that those guys pushed themselves to, and then come back to Perth with the renewed enthusiasm. And I'm sure the guys hated us coming back from LA because um, training just cracked up to a whole new intensity. Um, <laughs> And, you know, just over the years, it, it continued as the dynamite factory. And then uh, eventually new management team, the new management team wanted to move into a nicer facility that we'd always bounced around in Maddington. We'd been at about four or five different buildings in Maddington. A lot of people lived north and the guys felt like the market up north in terms of trainees hadn't been fully exposed yet, that we'd been down in the south for long enough. And everyone that we were going to draw to training was probably already training. So we moved north. We got a nice new building. Um, they spent a lot of time and money dressing the place up, um, getting better mats in there, setting the place up better, better weight equipment. Um, and then uh, sort of thought at that time, you know, the name, the Dynamite Factory has been around for a long time. Factory doesn't have a great connotation if it's going to be a professional place that you're going to go train and learn um so we we tossed a few names around and uh epw school of pro wrestling which if you uh if you expand that out is actually the explosive pro wrestling school of pro wrestling <laughs> quite the mouthful but uh yeah we, we just call it the epw school of pro wrestling so um we just thought you know it's a it's a school it's a place of learning and just emphasizing that and uh you know the word factory you when you think of factories you think of pallets and you think of forklifts and stuff like that you don't think of professional wrestling in a professional training environment so uh, it was just time for a bit of a rebrand and a refresh awesome man i love that and i wanted to also just bring up as well you mentioned shane hayes being in that first class like how's it been for you watching him grow from being a trainee to now being on raw uh it's crazy <laughs> yeah, it's, <the> same. <laughs> it's um you know you 
at, at the time when Shane started and the, the time when I started, you didn't think that that was a possibility. We all dreamed of it. We're all going to be in WrestleMania. We're all going to be the WWE champion. But I don't know that any of us knew what's the pathway to take to get there. And, you know, guys like him and Hartley Jackson and Mikey Nichols, they were guys who went out there and really blazed the trail that they, they didn't sit back and just wait and say, if I just train in, in Western Australia and get good enough, eventually someone's going to knock on my door that they got overseas. And then once they got overseas, they came home. And when they came home, all they were doing was working to save money to go back to the U S and they go back again and again and again. And, you know, Shane and Mikey were constantly putting themselves in positions where they would have to start at the bottom again. You know, whether you go to a new promotion or you go to a new training school, you start at the bottom again and to be willing to, at the level they were already at, I'm pretty sure they were already, they had already been booked on Ring of Honor, um, but that they went to Harley Race's school for a, a bit of a tryout that Harley did every year. And he would have a representative from, I believe back in the day, they used to get New Japan, NOAA, TNA and uh, WWE. And the NOAA rep uh, contacted the guys and then off to the races from there that they were able to go there, live there. And when I think, it's a completely different thing when you are chasing the dream, but it is part of your life that you you're living here at home in Perth and you're going to work and then you're going to the gym and then you have to go to training. It's such a difficult balance to be able to balance that in your social life and everything else. Uh, but when you, when you get to go to Japan and then now this is their full-time profession that they live there, they train, uh, they keep the dojo clean and then they go and do shows and that's it. They can 100% focus on wrestling. Um, you know, once they get to that point, you think how amazing that someone's been able to make a full-time profession out of wrestling coming out of our school. That's, that's really cool. Full credit to them for everything that they've done. But then, you know, to hear, Oh, <laughs> they've been signed by WWE. Like that's just another, it's another uh, achievement that those guys can, can hang on their belts that, um, and, and, you know, it's, they signed at a time too, where they weren't just snapping up every indie talent on the scene just to have them under contract. This was a period where, you know, they weren't, they weren't NXT hadn't quite become what it's become now um, that they weren't just snapping up talent left, right and center. Like those guys, you know, they, they, they were able to get that at a time when, when contracts weren't flying around. Um, and, you know, to be able to, for, for Shane to be able to hang in there and, and continue to do what he's doing and, and show up after all these years, you know, he is, he's 18 years into his career and to show up and put in the work um, every day and then get the reward of, of being able to finally make it to Raw um, albeit in you know pretty extraordinary circumstances at the moment, but to to be able to go from little old Perth, Western Australia, the you know debatable most isolated capital city in the world, in a place that had no wrestling nine months before he started training, to get to where he's at is pretty remarkable. Oh, it's it, it's insane. I remember seeing what him and uh, Elliot Sexton on Raw what, a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago. Man, I was just like, holy shit! Like I saw these guys wrestle. In Perth, like multiple yep. times, 
like not that <laughs> long ago. So it's just, yeah, it's awesome to see, man. Um, yeah. Do you have any funny trainee stories? Obviously without dropping any names, but uh, from oh, training. God. It's probably a story. Um, look, lots. Some I can't tell for fear of incriminating people. Of course. Uh, two, <laughs> two funny ones. Um, when Shane first started to, to continue to name drop Shane, um, <laughs> the guys were sent for a run and our factory at the time, the initial place we were training was about a kilometer and a half from a McDonald's down the road. So <laughs> if you weren't ready for the guys, you would just say, Hey guys, go for a run to Macca's and back. Cool. Um, Shane would always beat everybody back because he's just fit and athletic and congratulations, Shane. So off they go. Johnny Wimbledon's the first one back. And then a couple more minutes go by, someone else comes back. And then a couple more minutes. And then eventually Shane walks through the door. And Tyler Jacobs, uh, formerly FN Carnage, uh, he was the first guy to confront Shane as he walked through the door. And he said, what took you so long? And uh, he goes, I don't know, man, just not feeling it tonight. He's like, oh, why did Pom beat you? Why did, why did Johnny Wimbledon beat you? Uh, he cheated. And he, <laughs> Carney, Carney was an angry, angry, angry man back in those days. So he storms across the factory and gets right up in, in Johnny Wimbledon's face. And he's like, did you cheat? He's like, what, 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 what do you mean? Did you cheat? Shane told me you just cheated. Shane now obviously <laughs> feels like shit because Johnny Wimbledon's about to get it from Carney. He goes, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. I lied. I lied. Carney doesn't bat an eyelid. He goes, outside. Yep. Okay. He goes outside, takes a chair with him. Oh. Carney sits down in this chair and just has Shane do burpees for I don't know how long. And this was before burpees were just, you know, a tried and tested training technique. This was just something evil Carney had seen somewhere. He's like, <laughs> I'm just going to make this guy do this until he's dead. And I remember walking outside and Carney is sitting at Shane's feet just staring a hole at him as he's doing this. And every time he goes down, he's got to get up right in Carney's face. And every time he gets up, he's more and more exhausted. He must've been at about 80 at the time I walked out there. And Shane's just peeling himself off the mat. Um, yeah. Now that I think of it, you know, it's not that funny, but uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it was, uh, that was the time Shane lied himself into doing burpees until he was absolutely dead. Uh, lesson was well and truly learnt. I don't know that, that Shane ever lied to Carney ever again. Um, the other one that comes to mind actually involves Shane as well. And it's not necessarily a training story, but it's just a funny story around the factory. Um, you know, Jag, Jag used to come over here regularly and Jag is basically a God to myself and all the guys that came through at the same time that I did. So uh, Shane sees Jag walk through the, through the door, wasn't expecting him is super excited to see him and walks up to come and shake his hand. Um, Jag being Jag, he's a very surly individual. Uh, Shane used to carry around a little green cloth that was called Incredible Towel. Anybody who knows Shane knows Incredible Towel. <laughs> it is this towel that Shane used to carry to the ring all the time. He carried it for years and years and years. Uh, this building has an incredibly high roof. Uh, Shane walks towards Jag, incredible towel in one hand, and puts his other hand out to shake Jag's hand. Jag reaches past it, grabs the towel, and just throws it in the air as high as he possibly can. There is a small hook at the very top oh, of the building wow. hanging from the roof. Somehow, it catches onto that hook and doesn't come down. <laughs> <laughs> Shane, 
Shane just has the saddest. You just killed my puppy dog. Look on his face. Uh, Jag just shrugs his shoulders and walks away. So one one night we're we're setting up for a EPW house show, and we're 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 doing all the entrance way. Me and Devlin Reeves, and we look, and this is this is so typical of him, uh, Richter. Richter is has got a ladder inside the ring. He's got the ladder sitting on top of something. He's climbing this unsteady ladder, as tall and you know large as he is. He's climbing this ladder. He's got a broom uh, that he's gaffer taped to another broom so that oh. the other stick is hanging up high. And he's climbing <laughs> up this ladder and trying to trying to fetch Shane's towel off the roof. And somehow he's able to get to the top of this building with this makeshift ladder and double broom combo. He he pulls Shane's uh, he pulls Shane's towel off there so we try to come up what are we going to do with it you know we're going to film ourselves burning it uh you know (laughs) what are we going to do that could be funny um as it happens that night devlin is going to wrestle shane in in a match so uh dale walks out before the match shane's shane's already in the ring dale walks out and then gives it the one second one second reaches back through grabs the towel and starts swinging it around shane is just shocked he looks up at the roof he realizes oh shit that's the actual towel it's gone they somehow managed to get it down devlin cuts a promo on shane saying you know this towel has been you've been missing this towel for however many months uh if you win this match i'll give you the towel back but if i win this match i'll set this towel on fire in front of you oh wow uh Obviously, Shane knows he's going over. Devlin knows that Shane's going over. And uh, the story has a happy ending. Shane gets his towel back. But that was, uh, that was a awesome. hell of a lot of fun. That is so awesome. My face hurts from laughing, man. <laughs> oh, God. Only in um, wrestling, right? Of course. Of course. Um, I wanted one last thing about the school. Uh, where can people find the school uh, in Perth? Um, you know, what social media websites? Just plug it. Any other information you want to throw out about the school? Do you guys have an open day coming up? Uh, have you guys even opened again since uh, the restrictions? What's been going on with the school? Yeah, sure. So we've, um, you can find us in, on Berengara Ave in Malaga or on Hanson Street in Maddington. We're now at uh, two separate venues, one south, one north. We're, I think, wow. Actually, I probably shouldn't talk about that just yet. But yeah, we're, <laughs> we're, we're in two, two venues at the moment. It's, it's been difficult, obviously, managing that through not being able to train. Um, we took our classes online for 11 weeks and lucky for us, enough of the, uh, enough of the crew were willing to support us through that period. Um, focusing on promos and psychology and uh, ring gear and entrance music and all the things that, you know, you probably don't focus on when you're in there just doing the physical wrestling. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've, we've had a great period of time just being able to, help push this knowledge with, with all the crew and, and they've helped hold the place up in, in the meantime, obviously, you know, you still got rent to pay, still got bills to pay. That's um, we had a crew that are enthusiastic enough about wrestling that they were willing to take online classes, just like this chat that we're having right now uh, where we could try and share some information with them that will hopefully start paying off now. So we just went back to contact classes last Saturday um, so we are back up and running now, thanks to our wonderful state government. Um, and, um, yeah, it's, 
it's uh, where where can they find us online? They can find us on Twitter at uh, at EPW School. Uh, best place to contact us, I think, is probably on Facebook, where you can either look for Explosive Pro Wrestling or you can look for uh, EPW School of Pro Wrestling. But uh, I mean, we're 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 really up and about at the moment. Everyone's obviously excited to be back at it. I imagine that there's going to be an open day in the coming weeks. Um, we've just got a class sort of working towards their... We have uh, levels and grades and the, the beginner group are working towards their intermediate uh, graduation at the moment. And I think as soon as we've got that out of the way, we'll be looking at holding an open day. But we're between the two schools, we are running... Eight, nine, ten, eleven sessions a week wow. between the two schools. So, wow. if people are enthusiastic, and you know Shane Hayes, Mikey Nichols, Bobby Marshall, uh, Chris Vice, when these guys started, they were down there five nights a week. This is how these guys got to be who they are. They, they worked. I, I hate the word talent, and I regularly push this at our school. If you come to the EPW School of Pro Wrestling. You will hear me say how the word talent is overused as an excuse by people who don't want to do the work. That talent is just the ability to show up and do the work more than anybody else. Um, and that's what separates Mikey Nichols and Shane Haste and Chris Weiss uh, and Alex Kingston and Marcus Pitt and Damien Slater. That's what separates those guys is they have shown up and done the work consistently. Um, it's, you know, in hindsight, do you go, wow, they look really talented? Yeah, they do. They just worked an awful lot harder than everybody else. Uh, you know, if people want to come down and work hard, there's no shortage of sessions to get to. They can train seven days a week if their body will allow them. Um, yeah, come down. We're, we're super keen to spread whatever knowledge about pro wrestling that we can. Awesome, man. If anyone is listening, EPW is the place to go. Carl, back to you. Jack, I think maybe you and I should go down to the open day. I mean, I'm gonna be fucking useless, but I want to. I want to. I want to get you. I want to get you in there, Jack. Uh, Man, I am. I am so small. I think if I was to take a bump, I would probably break my back. Uh, <laughs> see, but, Jack's uh, Jack's biggest uh, enemy is a strong gust of wind, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we've all been there. We've all been there. It has been something I have toyed with um, the idea in the past. I am still 22 mm -hmm. years old. I've loved wrestling. You know, the itch has forever been there to be involved in the wrestling industry, whether it be as a professional wrestler, whether it be anything else. I mean, even doing this right now is kind of, you know, my, it's not even a contribution to the industry. It's just sort of my way of, you know, having my part in sort of uh, dabbling in wrestling, being able to talk yeah, yeah. learn more about the business uh, from a personal standpoint as well. But uh, yeah, Carl. Um, right. Well, uh, I know we've taken up a lot of your time so far today, Dave, and really appreciate it. I do, however, have a few more questions. Absolutely, mate. Go for it. Cool, bro. Um, I want to know what you miss most about the old days with that core early ECW, EPW roster. Life was simple, mate. <laughs> That's what I miss that um, Mikey has said it far better than I can. We lived six weeks at a time. That was it. There was no focus on, will I get to WWE? There was no focus on how many people will we draw to the next show. There was no focus on, uh, you know, how are my kids going to do at school or uh, what future prospects do I have in my job or my career? It was, 
get through that next six weeks with as much focus on professional wrestling as possible to get to the next performance, to make that as good as it can be so that we get the opportunity to have another six week build to another show where we do the exact same thing all over again. It was just the simplicity of it all that we weren't, we weren't thinking about um, how do I get a career in pro wrestling? And we weren't thinking about what's best for the long term of explosive pro wrestling. We were just thinking, how do we get to this show? And then how do we, how do we contribute the best that we possibly can to pro wrestling when we get to that show? And then hopefully that show is good enough. Then in six weeks after that, we will do it all again. Um, it was, it was such a simple time. Awesome, man. Um, Next question, EPW Reawakening 20 won't be far off next year, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, what would it take to get this to be the year of the ultimate EPW reunion? And, and, and what are your thoughts on 20 years of, uh, of EPW? Uh, the, the nostalgia thing, it's always a, it's a tricky balancing act right. between wanting to wanting to not look back with rose colored glasses too much because yeah. no one that like you said that feeling in that building on that night in 2003 uh i don't know that we've been able to replicate that ever yeah that it's just um it was such a primal feeling back then and you know the wrestling wasn't anywhere it wasn't shades on what we're we're turning out now but it just had a special feeling to it yeah um so I, i'm always cautious of looking in the rearview mirror too much because um fans look back at it with those same sorts of memories and yeah. perhaps you cut the legs out of your future by making okay. people look back at something that you know if you actually look back maybe it isn't what you think it is but it is to you um yeah. So yeah, I do, I do love, we do encourage the guys every reawakening. We try to get in touch with the old crew and say, Hey, just to remember, you know, the doors always open at training. Even if you just want to pop in and say hello, the doors are always open at shows. If you want to pop in and just say hello to everyone that it's really important to me that the stories of Perth pro wrestling past don't get lost from generation to generation that yeah. guys as guys and girls grow in this industry that they still know who slick Rick Sanders was and what he sacrificed so that we could all get to pretend to be fighters and get dressed up in our underwear and fight our friends. <laughs> um, and that, you know, the contributions of a Jimmy Payne and a Nate Dooley and a Drake Wallace and a Ferguson block, they're not lost over the years that, um, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to look back and say, you know, did those guys, did did a did a psycho fit has he done as well in ring as the current generation absolutely not but are we here without ferg's contribution i don't know so i never want that part of the story to be forgotten that absolutely in order for there to be a future there had to be a past and uh it's important that we look back and celebrate the past um but that that doesn't make us take the eye off uh, what we have right now and what we have right now. Um, I think bell to bell, we have a roster that can compete with any roster in this country right now that 
you know, you have the experience like Mikey Nichols, Damien Slater, Marcus Pitt, myself, Bobby Marshall. And then you have this emerging group of guys and girls. And, and I mean, if you just look at the talent we've lost in the last few years that, you know, Scotty Ryan's gone and Logan Gray is gone for the moment. And uh, Alex Kingston's currently on the shelf and Richter's on the shelf. You know, you take those four out of any company in this country and you weaken that roster considerably. And then you look down the line now and you, you have a Del Cano and you have a TPNA and you have a, a Jack Edwards on the way up. And then you've got a, uh, you've got a Taylor King, you've got a Julian Ward that yeah. there really is this, this push of talent coming from the, from the bottom up. And it's such a, it's such an important thing to have. I, I left out a guy who more than anyone I want to throw down with in a, in a uh, big match at the moment, or two guys that I want to throw down in a big match, uh, Gavin McGavin, who I have lined up for whenever we, we get out of this uh, COVID era. And um, the guy who I think in that group pushing through that I really want to get my hands on is Dan Steele. That, um, you know, me and him have a little bit of a history going back even to a old school schwa championship match. Yeah. Um, but he has come on in leaps and bounds in that time. And I feel like I've come a long way in that time also. And uh, I think we, we had a little, uh, we had a little stoush in a tag match going back a few months. And I was very happy with how that felt and looked. And I would very much like for us to, to get our hands on each other again. I'm just, I'm pumped, man. I just, when I think about, when I think about Perth wrestling and where it's at, and still, every show we had last year, I think everyone left it going, oh, that was a really good show. But no wrestler ever really came back through the curtain saying, yeah, man, that felt good. Every single one of them came back through the curtain going, that was okay. I can do better than that. Um, and knowing that those guys can feel that confidence growing and that they feel they're capable of so much more, um, it makes me super excited for what's to come next. Cool, man. Um, I've just got, I think it's three more questions. Um, yeah, as the years go by, I see things like, you know, this Undertaker documentary and um, it made me think about, you know, what, you're, you're 20 years in now, what would you want to be your exit strategy and, and, and how would you like to go out when you, when that time comes? Um. <laughs> <laughs> selfishly uh i would if they're interested in wrestling i would like to hand over to my kids my son is nine now so potentially if he wanted to he's nine to ten years away from maybe being ready to wrestle in ring my daughter's almost seven so she's probably about 11 to 12 years away from being ready to be in ring if she wanted to if they want to, I would like to hand over to them. Um, if cool. they don't, um, you'll have to drag me kicking and screaming. I reckon, man, like just, <laughs> I, I don't, uh, there, there were times where I think I missed it on a, um, I missed it in a different way. It's, it's, it's kind of hard to explain. I just feel like uh, I just feel like every time I, I have a great performance 
and I felt like my last one was, and I felt like my last one before that was that um, I just want to go until I'm not putting quality out, if you know what I mean. Cause I feel yeah. like you get a little bit better every time you go out there. And when I feel, and I've, I've spoken to a bunch of guys and said, Hey man, the second you see me take that turn, you're going to have to be honest with me and just tell me. Um, so, you know, I, I hope to just continue putting out quality work for the moment. And when I feel like I can't do that, um, cause physically I feel fine at the moment. Um, cool. and it's just a case of whether, whether or not I can match my experience. If my body holds up, then my experience should continue to help me get better. But if uh, the body starts to deteriorate, that might be where I, I have to pull the pin. Yeah, I'm not sure. Outside of, outside of the perfect handing over to the next generation scenario, I'm not sure what the perfect scenario would be. Cool, man. Um, so all the, the stuff with your, your head is okay these days and the, um, the trauma that you had a, a while back, that's, is that non-existent now? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm... <laughs> <laughs> I've gotten progressively ditzy as the years go on that, uh, but I think I, I, I credit that more to just an accumulation of information between my ears, mate, that just, you can, you can only hear and remember a certain amount of things before things start to get a little bit shaky up in the, up in the head, mate. So, um, I, I feel fine. I'm able to, obviously I can run my mouth for a couple of hours at a time. So, um, <laughs> the 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 mind mouth connection is still strong um but yeah I, I i feel good at the moment the body feels good i've got a long-standing uh right shoulder issue but it's more just something that sneaks up on me i've just got a bit of tightness in my trap that when i it's more stress related than anything whether it's physical stress or emotional stress um but yeah look man the the head's fine um cool. i run around in circles sort of chasing my tail but um I think for the most part, the person who finds my head issues most annoying is Michelle, who uh, <laughs> has to try and have conversations with me. <laughs> uh, and last question before we get to a little segment that I like to call Five Second Frenzy um, is uh, what advice have you received over the years that helped you the most? Um, as a wrestler, I think the most important bit of information I got. Uh, the, the best bit of advice was the one from Cole that I mentioned earlier, which was um, shut your mouth and get to work. Um, that wrestling is a long, hard grind to get good at. And, um, you know, there's, there's no guarantees in, in any art form that you throw yourself into. There's no guarantees of any sort of payoff that just you, you have to be willing to do the work and just, Wrestling's not always going to pat you on the back and tell you that it loves you. Um, but regardless, on those days, you need to show up and get to work. Or the day when the opportunity does come, you're not going to be ready for it. Um, and life advice. Um, there's a Jack Cornfield quote, and I won't be able to nail it exactly, but pretty much he said, um, we, we must do work, or in our case, art. We must do art for art's sake not for the attention or the applause or the gratitude. Um, we need to do it because that expression is there within us and it means something to us and not because we want attention for it or not because we want money for it or not because uh, I, I hate the word deserve. I, I 
can't stand it. I understand that some people work harder than other people. Life doesn't work that way. There are so many factors that play a part of it. Timing plays a part of it. Relationships play a part of it. If, if there was just this rule that if you just got in a room and worked harder than everybody else, that you would get more than anybody else. Um, you know, there are people who do manual labor jobs who would have more money than any of us, because I can tell you that there are people out there working harder than any of us that, um, you know, there's no, there's no guarantees. You just need to, you need to follow your nose as much as possible, lean into the things that you're passionate about um, without worry of, am I going to be a million dollar rock star or am I going to be a million dollar wrestler or, you know, where is this life going to lead me? Just do the things you enjoy for the sake of doing it because it's what you love. It's what you enjoy. And at the end of the day, when you're lying on your deathbed, you'll go, fuck, I lived a pretty good life, man. Yeah. Sweet as man. Um, all right. So five second frenzy. Uh, Oh, <laughs> my mind, my mind doesn't work that quick. <laughs> uh, that's probably we should probably think about retooling this segment, Jack, because a lot of wrestlers <laughs> need more than five seconds to answer a question. Um, but these are just some fun questions, just to learn a little bit more about you and some of the the typical things that you love. Cool. Um, so we'll start off with uh, what's your favourite musical artist? Ooh, uh, give me Paul Dempsey. Excellent. Uh, favorite TV show? Oh, goodness. At the moment, Ozark. Good show. Okay. Great show. Uh, favorite film? <laughs> um, this definitely isn't my favorite film, but it is a nice, easy film that I enjoy watching that hits me in the feels. I'll go with Remember the Titans. Oh but fuck yeah! If I can just if I can just run with a theme, I generally like movies that are set in reality that punch you in the chest and leave you feeling at the end of it, yeah. rather than a sci-fi or a superhero movie or um, or something that's um, you know surrealist or or not based in reality. I like things that give you a boring human emotion. Was it Marriage Story? Was that the one with? Uh, Oh God, what's his name? Uh, the guy who, uh, 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 driver, driver, is that his name? Uh, Ryan Gosling. Not Ryan no. Gosling. What's, um, uh, hang on. Uh, what's it called again? Marriage Story. Yes. I'm, just, I'm, I'm sure that's that. what it's called. <laughs> I'll just Google See how I've managed to make this uh, <laughs> six, 60 second frenzy? Yeah. <laughs> Adam, Adam Driver. Adam Driver. The, yeah. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, sorry so i that, think gosling was in a in a movie called driver but anyway keep yeah going. okay but yeah that <laughs> that movie uh is my kind of movie you you leave it going oh god like humanity is all kinds of wonderful and awful and i don't know how to feel about myself cool i'll download that illegally um <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's your uh, favorite food burgers Sick. Yep. Sick. Uh, favorite opponent? Uh, I can't go past Marcus Pitt. Awesome. Uh, your favorite match you've ever had? I know that's probably my EPW Championship match with the Don Michael Morleone last year, uh, where the the build was all around me wanting to win the belt one more time for my kids, and then uh, being a loser 
and then my son coming into the ring afterwards and, and giving me a hug. It was the most special moment I've had in a wrestling ring and just happened to come on the back of a really, really good match. That's very nice. Um, favorite alcoholic beverage? I know you said that you don't drink, but this is what's in the question. So, Damn. Uh, look, I, I used to be a straight Southern comfort drinker. Cool. Uh, favorite female body part? Oh, eyes. Well, that's Excellent. An interesting one. We're getting yeah. we're getting some different answers. Uh, Jack Godfather said titties. Alan, <laughs> Alan Funk said ass. Scott Hudson said brain. And now Ooh. we're getting eyes. Very nice. Very nice. Titties are titties are hard to go past. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, lastly, what is your favorite curse word? Fuck. There we go. <laughs> Sweet as. I want to sign this off by saying that I, I truly believe that this planet is a better place because Dave Farley exists. <laughs> oh, thank you, man. That's, yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you. You're, you're a hell of a human being. And again, as Jack has said, and I'm saying right now, thank you very much for your time. And hopefully we can do another one of these because there's more stuff we could probably cover. There's, there's a few more stories from 20 years, right? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, thank you, Dave. And uh, you were all watching the podcast here on the WZWA Network. And it has been a, a 